the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding. Welcome to podcast, care of Cooper Cherry. Um, Today's guest is uh, well, DC, so that he can maintain his an- anonymity. Uh, but we are going to be delving into a little bit about psychoanalysis, uh, primarily the the death drive, and then we'll sort of you know let things flow from there. But um, again, DC is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter at four Q two four eight. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, this is very cool. Absolutely. So the um, already came up with the title for this one. This one's going to be uh, "Death Drive for Cutie," which, which I love. <laughs> yeah, I'm a. Uh, I didn't listen much Death Cab, but <clears throat> oh, I didn't either. But <laughs> there's that other band he's in that I like, the lead singer. But anyways, okay, gotcha. go on, keep going. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, like that's a really good example. I'm really good at coming up with shit like that. I don't know these kind of puns or like plays on titles things like that on a that that's fun to me <laughs> yeah no no that's the kind of nerd i am you know yeah i'm right there with you it's like uh playing with legos but it's language instead of legos yeah absolutely a uh, good call good call uh but you were i think maybe it might be interesting to start off you were talking about in kind of our little you know warm-up discussion today how psychoanalysis is something that we we sort of stumbled upon that i thought was a pretty good story so do you want to maybe go over that for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess a little background. I'm training to be an analyst, like an actual clinical analyst. I'm, I've got about a year and a half left in my program and then I can call myself a psychoanalyst. But, uh, I was just telling my analysts, uh, I'm frustrated with the way the program is going, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? But, uh, Freud discovered psychoanalysis by accident which didn't occur to me until recently. Uh, he was a physician. He was studying eels, uh, trying to do all this kind of physical stuff. And one day he's like, wow, uh, the words have the same impact almost on people as physical material does. Uh, him and Breuer were, I, I forget that whole thing about Anna O, but uh, they basically discovered psychoanalysis by mistake. They were like, if, if you hypnotize people and you get them in a certain state, you can influence them and you can resolve symptoms just by talking. Uh, they, they stumbled upon that. And then ever since then, all these different parties have been trying to formalize that and nail down all the details and breaking up into sub camps and fighting each other over what this concept means or this word means. And here we are today with all these sub camps of psychoanalysis. But I think it just speaks to the idea of accident. On that note, what um, I just don't know why I've never really thought about this, but what is the like? What's the distinction between, or like in terms of historical development, psychiatry or psychology versus <laughs> psychoanalysis? Like, does it all sort of 
derived from Freud or is there like a separate history for these different types of, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. There was a lot of psychiatry going on before Freud. I always pronounce this guy's name wrong. It's not, I don't know, some Bluer, Brewer. It wasn't Brewer, but the big guy in uh, Europe. And there was Charcot and all those guys, which Freud was interested in. I guess the big difference is, uh, well, let me answer the question another way, and maybe it'll get some of the, the meat of the question. Like, people are always saying, like, oh, you're, you're a psychotherapist, or <clears throat> you do therapy with people, or you're going to be a psychologist. People say you're going to be a psychologist. So actually, psychology and psychoanalysis are different. Right. Freud said over and over again that psychoanalysis isn't actually a psychology. Or today, nowadays, it's not considered a psychology. It's like a, a method of understanding people, like hermeneutically, to okay. unpack uh, what they're going through and treat them therapeutically. Psychology is like running tests and, uh, and, and like doing research in a lab and all that kinds of stuff. And then psychiatry, basically, nowadays, is just uh, prescribing medicine, pres- prescribing pharmaceuticals. But way back in the day, psychiatry kind of, uh, you know, could contain all that kind of stuff. But you know how uh, history works. Everything branches off into right. smaller and smaller subgroups, and they all fight each other for who has the, the right way. <clears throat> can you explain or define hermeneutics, at least just broadly, so we can kind of maybe situate people to what that that means, and I think that was a really good point too, and good way to describe what psychoanalysis is as a practice. Yeah, I bet you you might have a better definition <laughs> than me. You sound like you're into Derrida and stuff, but uh, for me, or what I know about hermeneutics is it's just interpreting signs or understanding things like language on how it relates to each other and how it relates back to uh, what like the material you're working with. Yeah. It's just an interpretation basically. Right. Like I've uh, heard it. Maybe I, I'm thinking of, I think I've heard it described as deep, deep reading of a text. Yeah. In the context of psychoanalysis, it's like deep reading of the text of the unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. Because and that the, unconscious has these relationship though. Like Lacan says, the unconscious is structured like a language. So mm-hmm. there are, there's a symbolic element to our unconscious. So it doesn't necessarily, not necessarily to say that the unconscious has this very, it is structured exactly as a language, but there is a certain similarity between lips <coughs> symbolically and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And like even practically uh, what I've always took that statement to mean, I think it gets really misconstrued, but even for Freud, something can't become unconscious to an extent until it's become conscious. So like Freud distinguishes between two kinds of unconscious material. Like there's the stuff that is always unconscious, never becomes conscious. And then when you're in psychoanalysis, it gets raised to consciousness. So that's like just stuff your body does. Like we're not conscious of, uh, you know, like all the little ticks and creaks of our body and all the little sounds of our stomach and we tune all that out. We're not unconscious of all these beliefs we have. And then we go to analysis and we get maybe more in touch with how we feel in our body. And we learn that we have these beliefs we don't know. But then for like 
the Lacanian side of it, uh, it's like you really can't have a deep unconscious until you've gotten to the level of language, been able to communicate and kind of separate yourself from like feeling and the body and all that stuff. That difference, that difference uh, creates that gap and then the unconscious stuff goes there. So like I'm aware of this thing, I'm uncomfortable, I censor it, it goes right into the unconscious. If you're never aware of it, there's no reason for it to become conscious and go unconscious. So I always look at that like the unconscious is like this negative side to language, which is, you know, conscious and superficial. But oh, Lacanians might might have some disputes with my language use and all those concepts. But I think that's a general idea, at least. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a super, I like that. I like that description. That's a pretty interesting like idea to unpack. It's at least I like it. how I use it with patients. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And which I think to that end, like, like you're, the fact that you have actually practiced psychoanalysis, I think is a great, you know, addition to this discussion because, you know, I've had um, Todd McGowan and some other psychoanalysts, but none of them are actually practicing. So I think mm-hmm. your perspective is pretty unique and, and interesting here. Um, maybe we can talk about, a little bit about, so you're actually, you are practicing, you're, you have a few patients that you're dialoguing mm-hmm. with on kind of a regular basis. Yeah, so I work uh, about like 24 to 32 hours in a mental health clinic that's not psychoanalytic, but I just like helping people, you know, and it pays the bills, so it's nice. Um, and then I have, I work about 20 hours with a, uh, so I have about 15 patients outside of that uh, that I see under supervision of like, you know, people have been doing analysis for decades. Um, so I'm technically training, but I, I am doing analysis. I just can't call myself a psychoanalyst because I'm not technically there yet. But yeah, I basically treat people analytically, uh, 15 people. And I see them weekly or biweekly. We don't, I don't do the three times a week thing. I literally don't have time for it. And most people these days don't want to see someone three times a week. It's very tiring. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Freud used to do three times a week or more. So, uh, but yeah, I, I get really excited about like trying to apply all the abstract theory that people kind of throw around and what is, this looks nice on paper. What does it look like when you bring it up with an actual person who can say no? Right. I have a whole bit in one of my blogs kind of maybe being a little polemical against Zizek where, you know, people like Zizek, they choose uh, to analyze cultural objects like film, uh, historical events, all that stuff. And I just kind of have this little polemic that's like the film can't tell you no, that's wrong. So there's no feedback cycle there. So you can have an interpretation with the patient. The patient can bring you this like beautiful dream and you can be like, oh, could it be that this is the case for these things? And the patient will be like, no. And then <laughs> you have to be like, oh, shit. Because on one level, you could be right. But just because you're right doesn't mean it has any meaningful or helpful effect to the patient. Right. On the other level, you could be wrong, but it could, have, it could still help the patient, which I think is the hermeneutic and hyper-real aspect of it. But maybe we can save that for later. I don't know if you want to go there right away. Uh, not quite. Let's, uh, let's hold off a bit. I'm curious i didn't ask this earlier but what uh what was sort of the genesis of like how did you get into this whole world of psychoanalysis and in theory largely just in general yeah uh let's see 
before going into undergrad, I knew I wanted to do something that was like in the helping profession. Um, so I, in undergrad, I st studied developmental psych and double major in philosophy. And I met someone there who was like, oh, you should really go, if you really want to try to help people, uh, you should do psychoanalysis. I said, sure, sounds better than CBT, which I'm not really interested in. So basically this, this fellow just guided me and I ended up going to grad school where he taught and the rest is just history. So I guess that's the structural answer. The kind of more individual answer is, uh, I think growing up, I was always a little untethered from reality and just kind of felt at odds with other people. And I think the kind of joke is you go into psychoanalysis basically to figure out what's wrong with yourself. <laughs> and then once you figure that out, you can start helping other people if they want help. So I think it was kind of like I was drawn towards it to figure out, you know, why people have such strange thoughts or why weird things happen in life that don't seem to make sense. Kind of get under that veil. I guess curiosity is the short answer. Are you someone that identifies as um, like a strongly kind of like imaginative person? I think so. You think so? I'm, okay, gotcha. Yeah, very big into imagination and you got to create your own ideas about something and see if it works or it doesn't. Yeah, um, I definitely I identify that same thing. It's like I've always been somewhat super reliant on kind of this on on imagination. And I think part of that, too, is just like. I grew up in a very small, like rural community and um, a lot of open space, a lot of mm -hmm. um, opportunity to kind of wander through the woods and like let your, and like, you know, we used our imaginations mm -hmm. growing up. My friends and I are like, I might just be outside, you know, thinking up different things when I'm interacting with, with nature and whatnot. So yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting. No, that's great. A strong inner world. Yeah, exactly. Like a rich inner world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But do you, do you, where do you want to start in terms of the actual kind of meat of the conversations? I think death drive is definitely maybe the biggest thing that I want to focus on. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on the death drive? With, with that kind of stuff, I work best with like a idea or a prompt. Otherwise, if you can't tell, I'll just kind of yeah. rambling and <laughs> slip into my own kind of narcissistic stream. Gotcha. So. What's your, uh, where well, do you I'm, start with the death drive? I, I find it kind of difficult to understand or, and I've heard different and I don't know all the, you know, it's, you know how psychoanalysis can be, right? It's so like these sort of point, these, all these contrasting things are like what appears to be something on the surface level is never what it is like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So and I think death drive is just the reason I wanted to talk about it is for one, just to like, I don't quite really grasp it that well oh, okay. for yeah. one and two, it's obviously something that gets misunderstood quite a bit because I think the popular idea about death drive or whatever one assumes about death drive, right. Is that this is this innate uh, desire f for destruction and I don't think that that's what Freud or Lacan or anyone who's talking about death drive is, is really actually getting at. It's, it's something different. Yeah. You're so to maybe like illustrate that difference. First of all, to just kind of dispel that mythology and kind of bring more, you know, a concrete mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, idea of what it really quote unquote is. <laughs> no, no, that's great. I think I sent you like a little, like it's, 
totally fine. I understand if you did not read it at all, but like this dense as hell <laughs> book I'm working on, on the Which death right. drive. It's, that's like a paper I sent to one of the big psychoanalytic journals and I got back these scathing reviews that were like, this is garbage, basically. It's almost like, it looks like you've never read Freud. I was like, oh, oh damn it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they're rough. So I just scrapped it. But uh, no, the death drive. Yeah, there's so many ideas out there about what it is or Thanatos. But uh, the, the concept comes up, of course, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1920. Um, Freud's looking for some sort of concept to offer explanatory power as to why people kill each other on mass levels, such as war. So I think that's a totally misguided way to approach the question, but I understand why Freud was like trying to approach it that way. But uh, his, his original idea is that it has to do with entropy and that basically because anima- animated matter or like organisms basically come from inanimate matter. He has this whole little bit about how uh, inanimate matter gets sort of accidentally charged with just enough investment of energy that it kind of folds back in on itself and creates this feedback cycle where it creates an outer crust that wants to protect from the outside world and an inner crust that becomes the internal kind of energy reservoir, blah, blah, blah. It's all this kind of uh, speculative, almost metaphysical uh, 19th, 18th and 19th century science stuff. But uh, basically just the gist of it is we come from inanimate material, which means a trace of that deep history of inanimate existence exists in us. So there must always be a pull back to that primordial zero. Uh, and he kind of, clinically tries to say like, you know, that's why we want to sleep. That's why death kind of might have an enjoyable pull to it. Uh, Because as an organism, we're constantly at this base tonal level of like excitement. Like our neurons are always firing. We're always up and doing something. We have these instincts and drives that are always telling us to go act, do and move that it wouldn't it be a giant relief if we could just, you know, get rid of all that, extinguish all that, and just relax. So that's kind of the death drive, which I think if Zizek or like a Lacanian were here, they'd say like, oh, you're confusing it with their nirvana principle. But I think that's to your point that uh, this concept has become so muddled. So there's the, the death drive. Then he's talking about their nirvana principle, which is this wish to just have no excitement. And then later he changes his language to call it thanatos, which is, you know, just to bring in some Greek mythology. But uh, the basic, basic takeaway is just that it's this pull towards zero because that will feel good because it'll relieve all of our tension, basically. And that tension release is pleasure. <clears throat> are, you, are you able to contrast that with, you mentioned a little bit briefly, like someone like Lacan or, or Zizek in terms of how they see the, the death drive. Can you... Mm-hmm are you familiar enough to maybe give us a little bit of an explanation or talk yeah. about why or, or what Lacan's concept of, of the death drive is for comparison's sake? I'm, I'm actually really bad with Lacan, okay. especially because his, uh, the people who are like into Lacan are so hardcore about whether you have it right or not. But <laughs> if now I'll also get grilled for this, but if, if Zizek's understanding of Lacan is anything accurate, then in Parallax View, I think that's one of Zizek's books. Yeah, like, definitely. Uh, 
that's one of the few ones I've read in full. He says uh, the death drive shouldn't be confused with the Nirvana principle and that really the death drive is too much life, which I totally agree with. So I think that sounds vaguely Lacanian in that it's not like an absence of life, it's an excess, but that could just be Zizek's reading of Lacan because you never know how confusing things get. But <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as far as Zizek, I agree that basically the death drive isn't like this morose like, Oh, if, if, if only I could get rid of all of my uh, thoughts and excitations, I could finally just enjoy this peaceful nirvana state. The death drive for me is more like excess. People constantly have this pull to get more and more stimulation that kind of leads to death. And that is very clinically evident, like smoking, you know, I don't smoke, but I get that it's enjoyable, but people also are aware that it kills them and they want to smoke more and more drinking or any sort of drug use, you're craving stimulus, even though you know it's uh, at the cost of your body and your mind. Uh, people who push themselves to extreme limits with sports and like they just trash their bodies, that's all like an excess of life. These people really want to get this intense like snapshot experience of life. So they go to these extreme means to get that and it ends up killing them. Uh, that's the death drive to me clinically. But uh, I guess just another way of putting it for Freud, and I think Lacan would agree with this, is that the death drive is unbinding. It says, like, I don't really want to connect with other people. There's no point in investing in anything. You know, might as well just invest in myself. And then the life drive is binding, which or libido, which says, you know, I'm going to connect with other people. I'm going to invest. I'm going to spend time. Uh, trying to support organizations I like, things like that. So the death drive says, no, I don't really, it turns away from the outside world, just invest energy into the self, kind of narcissistically. The life drive says, you know, I'm overflowing with life and I need to uh, invest it in things that'll actually get me more life or get me more enjoyment. I think that's a very kind of crude, uh, kind of kind of watered down version of what all that means. <coughs> I believe that I have heard Lacan's idea of the death drive really being maybe better, more of like, I don't know, having something to do with, with lack. And you mentioned starting at zero and sort of, I don't know if this is, maybe this is just Lacanian lack being like, mm -hmm. you're starting at, you're starting more so at negative one mm. and at zero. And there being some relationship between death drive and ah damn it i can't remember if it was if it was object ah or or just lack that mm -hmm. was more so kind of tied to the death drive let me see if i have a that sounds right i don't i'm not i'm by no means an expert on lacan right no let me see i have a paper on lacan and the death drive because i think something uh and i was listening to todd mcgowan talk about this too is Kind of like I think a lot of people view or like the instinct in all of this is to sort of view let's just use an example of like Trump and this whole kind of weird neo fasci kind of thing mm -hmm. about you know being this this really the death drive being what is animating all of this kind of bizarre kind of fasci behavior yep but really like for M McGowan was saying this is really actually it's kind of the reverse. Oh, I agree with them. Yeah. 
keep going with that thought, but I have a lot, I have a lot to say on that actually. <laughs> uh, I don't have a whole lot to add, but he was just, just saying that, uh, I forget how he was explaining. It was more like they're in like the, your assumption is that, or like on the surface, it seems like that's the drive for them, but it's the opposite. Their idea is to, and I can't, I can't quite articulate or remember exactly what he said to really round out the thought, but I'll I'll go and see, maybe we can. I think I know where you're going with this. I, so this is basically Nick lands making it with death, which I don't want to get too much into Nick land. Uh, so I'm really more into the CCRU kind of old stuff than where he is now. But uh, he has this genius paper, it's in Feng Numina, called uh, Making It With Death. Where uh, So like go back to my point where Freud comes up with the death drive in 1920. World War I is a thing. Uh, and then he revises the theory and calls it Thanatos around the time of World War II. Because he's around the wars, the, the big European wars, he's revisiting, like, why do people kill themselves or kill each other, you know, kind of in this clinical way, whatever. But that ends up setting this precedence that, like, basically, you know, with World War Two and World War One, and there, this Germany thing that, like, uh, that, like, oh, Nazis and fascism are kind of the model of the death drive, which Deleuze and Guattari kind of pick up um, in A Thousand Plateaus which is similar to this Trump comment you're making of like, you know, this big stupid idiot Trump is like making all these decisions and he's going to drive his country into the the ground and he's totally driven by this death drive. But I think what your, your guy is saying is basically kind of what Nick Land was saying, which is, uh, or what even I argue in that paper I sent you, which is uh, basically war is actually a giant sign of life. Uh, it's it's probably a sign of life we don't like to see, but war binds so much. It's probably not good for the economy overall, but it boosts the economy in the short term. It brings disparate and heterogeneous peoples together, people that would never fight along the same lines. It allies them to fight against a common enemy. Uh, it brings all kinds of technological institutions together that work together to create like new uh, advancements for the human race in general, blah, 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 blah. But where is I going with this thing? Just the idea that uh, the death drive, like Trump isn't really uh, powered by the death drive, so to speak. If Trump was powered by the death drive, he would just be like, I'm just going to stay in the oval office and I'm not going to tweet too much. And, you guys can kind of do what you want. The death drive is kind of like destructive and morose. He, he's, Trump has too much life and he's never had someone contain him. Like if I were to get clinical and, uh, and, and totally speculate, uh, he's never had someone in his life give him a good boundary, you know, and say, listen, Donald, you can't do that which is very much often the case with these rich people, right? Right. They have all this power and money, which is life. Basically they have all this power and money and they just fucking do what they want. And it's terrible. So that's not uh, the death drive. That's the life drive gone out of control. And it doesn't really threaten their life at all. Cause they've got such a buffer economically and, and culturally that these people unfortunately can do whatever they want and no one really uh, holds them accountable. So the death drive would be more like uh, something 
I can't think of a good politician that would be the death drive. Yeah. What about, what about narratively or like in terms of, is there a, maybe a character or something that you, or maybe even a work or something that, whether it be oh, something, yeah, yeah. something that you could, maybe that will help. Totally. I think Freud himself was struggling with the death drive and trying to, uh, trying to prove when I think death drive, I think you have this, this is kind of Lacanian, this need to constantly prove to other people that uh, you're worth something or that you're smart or that if people could just see you for who you are, they would love you and you'd finally have this moment of nice peace and love and acceptance. It's like uh, when you're caught up in the constantly the gaze of the other and all your actions and thoughts and feelings are kind of engineered to please someone else or to, uh, or to get something from someone else. That's kind of uh, morose, depressive, self-destructive death drive when you don't really have your own self. I know that's a nebulous word self, but we don't have your own reasons to do stuff. Uh, that's death drive. You've kind of, given up your life and put everything in the hands of other people. I think not to get too political, but I think a lot of left politics is more death drive because uh, it, it fights these, these, these almost impossible cultural battles and it gets totally lost in like these discourses. Uh, and I think people forget what they were fighting for and they totally just get up, get caught up in like uh, kind of like internet flame wars, you know, that's kind of death drive. Nothing really positive comes from it. You call someone on your Twitter feed of like a, a fascist and they say, I'm not a fascist. I, I want to support Kamala Harris. And then the Bernie people are like, she's a cop. And then like, you know, that's a death drive. There's no binding. There's no coming together. There's no uh, productive. Maybe a Hegelian would say there's something productive coming out of that because there's all these uh, negations and, maybe thoughts get better solidified and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think there's, I think that's kind of more death drive. I don't know. That's very loose. I bet someone could come up with a really good argument why that's not the case, but that's my thought at the moment, at least. Okay. That uh, kind of makes me think to something, some idea that I've been toying with is that one of the big challenges for any kind of left movement, whether that be you know, just socialist or communist or what have you is that there is, and I think you articulate that, or you kind of bolster this a little bit with the idea that, so there is like capitalism is, is surplus. It's excess of life, mm -hmm. like the libidinal flow of it versus for the left, like socialism, leftism, communism is at least, commonly thought of as it's it's lack it's not there's no libidinal flows in it it's this very kind of like like you're saying like the the enjoyment is in being in not experiencing life mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. sense of like the way that you're drawing the the distinction between it's not about know, excess yeah, between death drive and so forth. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges is to come up with an idea or an, a framework for communism that isn't, that is about 
excess of life and yeah. not about, you know what I mean? That there's a libidinal, there's a desire element mm-hmm. to it rather than like the denial of enjoyment. Totally. I think that's, that's the biggest challenge is in a sense like capitalism, like people always say, you know, capitalism is um, like it, it takes advantage or they don't know. They don't say that they say that it's human nature. Right. Yep. I, I don't think so in the same way, but I do think it, it, attaches itself to or it it abuses or not abuses but it, it latches dangerous. on it latches on to this like lacking or takes advantage of our lack of our that totally. lack of our subjectivity and and tries to fill that and come in even though that promise is kind of like a bait and switch ultimately cap uh communism doesn't really have the ability to i don't know to yeah, to overcome that or to have like its own um, capitalism game. theory of desire, right? Yes, yes. Capitalism games a mechanism, right? And it, it it locks in with these incentive circuits, and it has this nice. So the flip side, I think, what you're saying is, if you're not going to actually cash out the incentive, which not everyone gets to cash it out, it also has this nice fantasy that like you could cash it out if you tried hard enough. The whole. Uh, What's that called? Like the whole, uh, I forget the name of the concept, but uh, basically just the American dream that if you work hard enough and do everything you're supposed to, you too can be a billionaire. So you either get the incentive or you get to live in the fantasy, which is purely Lacanian, right? And then, uh, but unfortunately, communism has yet to find its strong enough incentive and fantasy that everyone can libidinally enjoy and kind of bond together over. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. It doesn't hack the incentive. I was just reading this interesting book last night called Cadres and Corruption. It's about uh, the Chinese Communist Party. But uh, this guy systematically goes through and like researches from the early years of the Communist Party. And it's just basically saying just that, that uh, after they won the wars, the kind of revolutionary wars, all the officers wanted like to relax and to uh, have some nice incentives in life and to enjoy their lives. And the big party bosses were like, that's a capitalist mentality. This is not time to enjoy. You need to keep working for the revolution. And when you put it that way, you see that there is no short time value, immediate payoff for that. You know, it's going to be very hard to rally people around that kind of incentive, but that's just an aside. It's a, a coincidence. I just happened to be reading about that last night. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's definitely gets at kind of what what I'm talking about. Um, I have heard though too. Again, you know, going back to McGowan, is he was talking about people, people like Trump or that have like the billionaire class, or they are, <laughs> they're even in more, like they're more aware of their lack than even like someone who is you know, at least ostensibly lacking, like in a material sense. <clears throat> yeah, I think, uh, I would agree with that. I think just like with celebrities, the more people, the, the more stuff people accumulate, like that's the whole object petite thing. The closer you think you get to getting that sort of fantasy object, that thing you never had, the the further you realize it is like, <laughs> 
it's yeah. it's kind of like what uh, people with addiction struggle with, whether that's drugs or using other behaviors. It's like uh, if I just get the right fix, I'll finally be in that place I need to be. And uh, but then you get it and you realize you need more, or that you know you're constantly grasping at sand. So I think that's true. Uh, and then there's of course that cliche that you know these really poor people in the east who only have a grain of rice they're like the happiest in the world or we don't have to play in that cliche the cynics right. from ancient greek that that cynic who's like you know i'm just happy having the sun rise and set so that kind of stuff yeah which i think is a bad it's a bad move to kind of fetishize the like totally that, agree that to a degree but i think there is something there in terms of like the i don't know the the sociopathy or the, I don't know, the the sort of negative aspect of mm -hmm. as you get to these higher levels that you become even increasingly more. And it's like this kind of negative feedback loop of like acquisition and domination and so forth that really is driving, I think, capitalism and society at, at large quite a bit. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Have I... Have we gotten to the core of the death drive as you wished? Or have we further obfuscated <laughs> <laughs> the question? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I think... Uh, I guess it doesn't matter. I'm enjoying talking about uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the objective of the podcast, too, is not to be so super rigid with it. But I, That's good. I mean, I think in dispelling the mythology or, like, the assumption that the death drive is this necessarily destructive or like it's the way that people imagine it or think of it is probably not accurate and giving a little bit more showing a bit more of the nuances is kind yeah. of one of the big things that I wanted to, to do or achieve there. Um, Absolutely. One thing you did mention briefly, the other, maybe that'd be a nice little thread we can follow up on um, to kind of tease things out too, is talking about the other and, sort of of the the um the unconscious being the discourse of the other yeah uh how i understand that just kind of practically without theoretical language is basically through this other psychoanalyst donald winnicott i have this little genealogy that gets me to lacan it's donald winnicott felix Guattari, and then jacks lacan i know that's not temporal but Winnicott had this great concept in the 40s, 30s maybe, don't quote me on that, called uh, false self and true self. That's why I sent you that Young paper that Winnicott reviews Young, because in that uh, Winnicott says, I'm not talking about mystical stuff like Young was, and I like Young, so I'm not disparaging him, but Winnicott's like, I'm not talking about mystical stuff like Young was about the self. I'm basically just saying that... Uh, that when you're a little baby, uh, the baby looks to the mother uh, through eye contact to get a feeling of itself, which that is pretty factual. I mean, developmental psychologists, you know, uh, have pretty much shown that that's to be true. Parents and children connect through eye contact and skin contact. But this gets really tricky because it's the mother's job 
to do her best to provide for the child in the, those maternal moments. The father does its own thing. But if the mother gets too frustrated, and babies can be very frustrating, so we should give mothers a lot of sympathy, uh, then the mother then starts to meet her own needs instead of the baby. And now the baby as an organism, just through feedback, is now responding to the mother's needs. So just let me put that in like an image, like baby's crying, mom tries to uh, comfort baby, baby continues to cry, mom understandably gets frustrated because maybe she hasn't slept for eight hours, mom's body tenses up, maybe she averts her gaze from the infant, maybe she puts the baby down when it's still uncomfortable. That creates an overload of uncomfortable stimulation in the baby. The eye contact is broken and now the baby basically feels fragmented. That's all like kind of Kleinian stuff, but... Now the baby, not consciously, thinks, not think, it's proto-thought. I need to do something to get mom's attention. So now the baby is responding to the other's wants and needs. And basically how this goes when you grow up is kids learn early on that they need to respond to their parents' needs in order to get their own needs met. And that's actually not how it's supposed to be developmentally. Parents are supposed to be in a stable enough place to meet their kids' needs and then put their needs off until it's behind closed doors, you know? But pretty much we all get fucked up as kids because we're constantly going around trying to monitor how our parents feel before we ask for things, you know? And that really gets ingrained in us and becomes totally unconscious. Then that becomes a voice in our head. And now all people have voices in their heads, not just schizophrenics. They're just kind of voices without eyes. In language, you know, uh, you, you studied language, so you know that you can write sentences without the I, of course, but the I is always implied. So we get all these voices in our head that are basically other people's voices. Oh, I really need to ask for $10 for lunch money, but oh, I'm worried I'll be taking too much from mom and then mom will be mad at me because she's already short on money and she already works so much. And like, before you know it, you're spiraling into kind of these neurotic pits of despair. Um, so I guess the false self, true self, we develop this false self where we're constantly in advance responding to what we think other people will, uh, how they'll respond to us. I know that's a little confusing, but it's like game theory. This is where it hooks up with Perline Letter, where uh, he talks about game theory in there. We're already crafting our response based on how we think someone else will respond to our action. So that creates this total false self. Yeah. uh, So this too, so sociologically, there's, I think the guy is, so there's the idea of the looking glass self, and I want to say that it's George Herbert Mead. I believe comes it up is. With this. Yes. And so it's a very similar thing. It's like this concept of like I defi- I'm having to define myself based on the feedback that I'm getting from you. Exactly. To constitute this idea of the self. Exactly. I, like I have to, I have to bounce off whatever the I or the image. Mm-hmm. from something else of the, I guess that would be maybe the other. That is the other. Yeah. That is the other, right? So that I'm a part the, object of the other. The other the, is the other is the looking glass that I'm trying to figure that I'm, it's almost like you're in the dark and you're trying to feel out like you're d- discover the self and you've like your eyes are closed and you kind of mm-hmm. touch the, the other. And that's kind of how you figure out your own con- self constitution or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. No, that's totally true. And that just plays right in with Lacan's mirror stage, right? Which uh, there's all kinds of developmental psychologists that talk about mirroring and all that kind of stuff. But uh, 
the idea that at a certain age, the infant is able to recognize itself in the mirror. Well, the first mirror is the mother's eyes. That's what Andre Green, Andre Green was a European psychoanalyst. He was a student of Lacan for many years. And then like most students of Lacan, he broke with Lacan and went hardcore Freudian, but he loves Winnicott and he has a nice paper that talks about the mirror stage is basically the proto mirror stages, the infant uh, exchanging glances with the mother where they both reflect each other, which I think clinically that's very true. When you put a patient on the couch, they can't see you anymore. And you get all these kinds of, cause you're sitting behind them. Right. Okay. Uh, and all these kinds of anxieties come up about, are you sleeping? Which some of those are reality based. Cause Hey, I've, I've fallen asleep for a few minutes, you know, but uh, you get all these anxieties about, uh, whether they'll be seen or whether uh, if, if we don't see each other, it almost feels like they feel like they don't exist. Like schizophrenic patients, if you put one on the couch too early, they'll feel like they don't exist because they're not uh, being seen by you. Like their existence is dependent so much on the other in that sense, which is really interesting, clinically at least. Theoretically, right. I don't know what people would say about that, but... Interesting. Uh, and that's and how babies are, you know? Are, are you currently, like, do you have actual schizo, schizophrenics as, as patients right now? Or, I mean, are you even, I don't know if that's no, no, bridging no. your, uh, you know, confidentiality and whatnot. But. I can talk about my patients. I just, uh, I keep everything, like, super vague in clinicals. Right. Uh, that's also why I'm anonymous on Twitter is because, like, I don't, I was talking to my girlfriend about this. I was... I was like, you know, I actually don't talk about anything that would be too edgy where I would get in trouble. I like Nick Land, which he says some rough stuff these days, but uh, I'm more into the CCRU and this whole idea of hyperfiction, hyper blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about that later. But no, I could talk about my patients. Um, I don't have any people with who suffer from schizophrenia right now, but uh, I used to work with a few people who are like schizoaffective. One person was really schizophrenic. And I wrote, I wait and then I write on people once I'm no longer seeing them anymore. And then I really disguise all the information so that it doesn't, you know, give anyone away. But uh, yeah, people with schizophrenia are super interesting. I, I love being around them, actually. Uh, they don't bother me. So <laughs> what is, I mean, I, this is kind of a basic question, but like legitimately, what is schizophrenia? Great question. There's a lot of theories on it. It's been like kind of the mystery diagnosis for a while and everyone's got their own idea. The, the way I understand it clinically based on a few different psychoanalysts is uh, it's basically just a fragmented self. Um, actually, Lacan's idea that it's a breakdown of the signifying chain is actually really like accurate, I think, that they can't put things together in language. They just have raw, intense experiences and because they can't order it temporally with language. Everything basically just happens at once for them. Oh, interesting. Uh, Ooh, that's fascinating. I mean, for some of them, when you learn, when you, when you chat with them, they'll explain. Uh, I had a, a supervisor who wrote on a case where his schizophrenic patient believed that when he moved forward with his body, like walked forward, that he was moving forward in time. And that when he walked backwards, he was moving backwards in time. And that when he stood still, time stood still. So 
if you think about it, language is how we understand time uh, for the most part. I mean, we have intuitive understandings of time through our, our inner clock or whatever, but to really abstractly organize ourselves around time, you have to have language. And if you don't have intact language as a schizophrenic, you don't have intact time. And that really uh, throws you in a whole world of chaos. But the quick version of how I just explain schizophrenia is uh, basically infants need to be contained. They need to feel like they're, uh, that there are boundaries and that someone outside of them is there to help them and keep them safe. And a lot of people who struggle with schizophrenia have childhoods where they were basically rampant and were allowed to uh, be violent. Well, maybe not violent, but they don't have boundaries or limits as children. I don't want to go into the whole thing. It's probably not super interesting to your, uh, to just thinking myself. I mean, I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that though, because I talked a little bit about how that, like as, as a child, I sort of had this like very boundless uh-huh. to a degree, like just in the, in terms of physical space, like I grew up on like a cattle ranch. So there was, there wasn't a lot of limitations for me. For one, <coughs> my parents weren't that engaged with yep. me like that much. Um, and I sort of did my own thing and yep. so I kind of <laughs> like, that's what I'm I told you, we've talked before. It's like, yes. I have often wondered, am I fucking, am I schizophrenic or like, well, that's the thing with Deleuze and Guattari get at is like, and this is a genius move by them. That's clinically totally true is that Freud starts with this idea that we're all kind of neurotics and then we can go psychotic or become schizophrenic. Deleuze and Guattari flipped it on their head and say, no, we all start out as schizophrenics and then we have to neuroticize ourselves, which is absolutely true. That's what Melanie Klein was saying. That's what Wilfred Bion was saying. And in a way, that's what early Freud is saying, that we're all kind of schizo. So in short, like that, I have that's a, our, I have, starting, our starting point is as the schizophrenic? Yeah, basically. Infants don't really have language. Obviously, they don't have ideas of temporal ordering. They feel just intensity. Deleuze and Guattari talk a lot about intensity. Right. Okay. Infants don't really have sensations. They don't understand that's a smell, that's a taste, that's a, I'm seeing something, I'm hearing something. They just have this wave of sensations at once. And through learning with their parents and through school, they learn to parse out categories. Uh, I have a nice piece on the blog where I talk about, have you seen True Detective uh, season one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know how Russ has that neurological disease where he like hears sounds and all yeah, that stuff. synesthesia kind of. Yes, yes. Uh, it's very Kantian because all the categories of understanding and all the sense categories gets mixed up, right? And they don't correspond to each other anymore. That'd be like a categorical error. But that's also very schizophrenic. That's basically what body without organs is. So you know those memes where it's like, explain the body without organs to me right now or I'll fucking kill you. Yeah, well, yeah. You just tell someone. Uh, that's what the body without organs is. It's when you mix everything up and uh, that's a line in a thousand plateaus. They're like, why can't we uh, think with our stomach and see with our head? And like, you know, anyways, I'm rambling, but. Uh, oh no, I, no, no, it's, it's good. I've got like five different like little <laughs> things that I'm kind of attached onto. Okay. One, like immediately the first thought that comes to my head when you're talking about the schizophrenic experiencing time 
at the way that they or you, the example that you gave is like the immediate image I have is of Dr. Manhattan because that is his like experience. Like that's literally from the graphic novel is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm experiencing all of time at once. Like there's no distinction between now and the past and the present. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of this deluge of experience, I guess. Yep. And that's a, that's very Landian. That's why another reason why I'm interested in Land is he really went schizophrenic. Like his whole, uh, the whole thing with the CCRU was like, instead of like doing, uh, like, how do I put it? It says my internet connection is unstable. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah, you're coming through. Probably just stupid thing, whatever. Um, Instead of just like doing theory, you like live theory. So like, he really like hold himself up in his office and pretty much did meth until the point where, and didn't sleep until the point he was, he was psychotic. And, uh, you know, and then when he came back to, he has little short books, like, uh, his book on templexity, temporal loops in Shanghai, China or whatever. Uh, and the CCRU is all about that idea this Dr. Manhattan idea of like, uh, the further you go into the future, you really end up in the deep past. Or if you go deep enough into the past, you've arrived in the future. This idea that future tech will end up being just like ancient shamanic rituals. Uh, You know, it all becomes one and then you can't tell where the loop started. And then, you know, why do you care where the loop started anyways? Because it's all folded back into the same experience. That's probably take a whole nother thing to unpack, but (laughs) right. Yeah. I think it's important to think about time as a, it's not necessarily ordered in the way humans perceive it to be ordered, but yeah. So I'm, I'm actually, it's funny too, that your, that time came up as well, because I've been reading, um, so I'm going to have, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but, uh, Todd may, uh, um, so doesn't he, ring a bell. So he wrote a pretty good, actually so far, I mean, I'm about 50 pages in, um, intro to Deleuze and I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's really good. And so he's kind of, getting into Deleuze by kind of saying, okay, there's three constituent or there's like this trinity of thinkers that Deleuze is integrating. First is Spinoza and his concept of like, um, of like the one substance, right? Yeah. But then uh, portion two is on Bergson and Mm -hmm. Bergson's idea of time, which I don't know if I could quite articulate that well, but it's sort of like there's no, I don't know, like there really is like you can sort of measure time. Like you can always slice up time into thinner and thinner pieces, but you'll never like. Like Zeno's paradox. Yeah, exactly. But applied towards time whenever Uh you, and that's kind of like this kind of common linear um, model of time where it's like just now is just like these discrete moments in time. Right. But, Bergson is talking about how like, well, the, the present is really rooted in the past Mm -hmm. and then the future is also obviously like it, they're all like, there's this unity totally among all three phases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I found really fascinating. So no, that's, I, yeah, Spinoza, I haven't read enough of him, but I love his monism because I read Freud as basically just the Spinozist, which uh, they call it a dual aspect monism. That's Deleuze and Guattari too. Like 
there's just this one substance basically and all these articulations of it. Right. But modality and like modes of what is it? it was like modes of expression. Yep. 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 No, uh, no, that reminds me a lot of Alfred Whitehead who I think in the Deleuze and Guattari literature, it's kind of noted several times that they don't comment much on Whitehead and that's because their philosophies are in ways so similar. But, uh, he has a very similar idea as the Bergson one of the present is rooted in the past and also the future. But, uh, that's, uh, maybe I'll do a blog post about that. It's pretty cool stuff. Actually. You also mentioned a little while ago, it was, uh, you were talking about sort of, uh, I think you were articulating about sort of the mirror stage of development and mm-hmm. like the infant and the mother and that dynamic. And maybe the, if this is too large of a question or too broad, you know, you can definitely let me know, but sure, isn't that sort of <clears throat> model for psychoanalysis? What anti-Oedipus, for example, is trying to undo or to supersede or Mm-hmm. contrast itself against it is it is yeah i'm a big ball of contradictions i guess they're not contradictions but like i read anti-oedipus i absolutely love it i think it's a genius book i love to and guattari specifically guattari i admire all their criticisms i think they're probably the strongest criticisms of psychoanalysis at the same time i find myself disagreeing with them often it's like uh, I'm torn between these two registers all the time of like, theoretically, they're correct in levying all these critiques. But at the same time, clinically, when you get down to like actually working with another person, it depends on what you want to do with that person and what they want in life. So not everyone wants to become a body without organs. <laughs> so they come into the office and they want to get rid of some of their schizophrenic symptoms because these things plague them. I have a little bit in my psychoanalysis blog, Deleuze and Guattari quote, I think Lawrence or something and saying a schizo out for a walk is better than an erotic lying on a couch. And I say, (laughs) yeah, it's a zinger, an absolute zinger. I say, yes, but at the same time, so many people, and this is, this was a lot of the literature after anti-Oedipus. People are saying they're valorizing schizophrenia, which I don't think is true, but some people really don't want those schizophrenic tendencies. Uh, some people want to be an erotic lying on a couch. On the flip side, I think the big thrust of psychoanalysis is not to create these copy, carbon copy, cookie cutter neurotics. And I think I try to do that with my analysis. I guess that's a long way of saying I think I try to incorporate the critiques of D&G into like, the way I work with people analytically without it being too one way or the other. Um, They got a lot of good points, but I think the core models also have a lot of explanatory power and can also be very helpful to people. So it depends on what the person wants, I guess. Was that clear? I feel like I... No, yeah, that was good. Yeah, but I I do love Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, But at the same time, you know... Sometimes if people want concrete, specific help. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's the toss up between whether you're doing schizoanalysis 
classical psychoanalysis, Lacanian psychoanalysis, or just psychotherapy. Right. So, what about um? We talked a little bit about the other and kind of how that impacts the self. What about the big other? Yeah, I uh, I just view the big other as like the master signifier, like master narrative. Is that accurate? It's like this overarching grid you kind of slot things into to make sense. Like the West is good and uh, like the mass, the, the big other right now, would, if you're like a conservative, I guess, I don't know, would be like Iran is kind of these bad guys and the West is doing something good or I don't know. You explained it to me. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm not, that's, I'm not all that clear on it either i okay i'm in the like vicinity of of the i see these ideas but i don't know it's one that i've i mean i've heard that like the big other is kind of like you're saying it's this thing that is kind of drawing it's providing like a structure i think it's like a master narrative but it doesn't really exist it's not real yeah it's an illusion uh i think Lacanians get really carried away with trying to tighten down all these concepts. I once saw someone say like, you can't analyze fantasy because it's already a negative of something else. I was like, shut up. Like patient comes in and they have a fantasy. You can actually learn a lot about what's going on, but that's, that's another thing. So a big other, I just view as like a master narrative. Um, And I guess that would have, uh, so I think our personalities form through, all these little others. Object petite is a great concept of, you know, I, I have to kind of adjust my needs to meet my parents' needs. And, you know, the great, the great critique in Anti-Oedipus is this line in the middle of it where they say, uh, we're not saying that there is no Oedipus. We're just saying that it's a parent's paranoid fantasy which is genius. It's basically the despotic daddy saying, uh, this kid wants you wife. This kid wants my wife. So I'm going to keep him from taking my wife. Uh, and why I bring that up is because it's true that all kids kind of want their mothers. Uh, how much that plays into sexual development is up in the air, but little babies want their moms. That's just straightforward. If the mom is doing the job, it's providing comfort and pleasure. Uh, through feeding and touching and all that stuff. So you really do form personality around that little other, but then dad does come in, whether it's sexual or not and say, okay, I want mom now, whether it has to do with anything with sex, it could just be mom and I want to cook a nice pasta dinner and the baby has to sit in like the the plaything or whatever. And that creates that barred subject. There's another force in the world outside of me that takes away the things I want. And that creates personality. So that's object petite. And then I think you grow up and I think the big other is this kind of overarching master narrative. That's kind of, you project your personality out into the social plane. Like uh, uh, those may be your ideas about woman as a whole or men as a whole, how society should function. I don't know. I think I'm at a loss with the master other gotcha. or, or whatever we call big it. Other. Yeah. Big other. You should get a who's a good Lacanian these days. Ask Crumps. We'll t- we'll tweet <laughs> at Crumps together after. 
<laughs> I'm sure he'll have something snarky to say about us talking. <laughs> um, so you mentioned fantasy. Maybe that's a good kind of can segue us into, and does, does Freud bring up these distinctions that Lacan does, like this trinity of the real, the symbolic, and the imaginary, and the interplay between those three different... I think he talks about them, but not in that language. I think that's one of Lacan's strengths is he really extrapolates some of these beautiful gold nuggets of Freud and like kind of tries to systematize them. But I guess the real changes for Lacan, I hear early Lacan and late Lacan, I guess early Lacan is like the real is like actually the reality out there. We don't know. So kind of Kantian, like it's this noumena thing. And then like later Lacan, I guess, is uh, the real is everything which can't be symbolized, like this constant leftover residue. So that later definition, I absolutely love. Uh, I think that's so, it's a completely negative definition, but I think it's a wonderful one. Um, And Freud totally talks about that uh, just in a different way. Freud and Jung talk about that. So like, I'll just go over the meta psychology in like 10 seconds. And I think it captures the real imaginary symbolic without using that language, which is like, we're born as these little babies, these little bundles of energy. Um, And there's all these instincts we have from birth, but because of the kind of organism we, we are, we can't constantly meet those instincts immediately. Like, uh, infants have a really long gestation period compared to like other organisms on the planet. And then we still need the mother after we come out of the womb. We need other organisms. It's not like a puppy, which still needs its mom. But if you let it go, it would probably figure out a way to live. Uh, So the mental apparatus starts to form. Okay. What the heck does that mean? It just means that the instincts start to, because they can't constantly be met. Where's all this energy going to go? And so the instincts start to kind of translate themselves into drives. Uh, They get caught in the body. So the body starts to produce thoughts and feelings about the instincts. Uh, What Jung adds there is this little step called the the imago or imago. I don't know how it's really pronounced. You've seen the word, I-M-A-G-O, where it's basically just a crude image of what the instinct is. So it goes instinct imago and drive somewhere in the same area. And then mommy and daddy start giving us language, even if it's just early sounds. And then we kind of get to that symbolic register. So basically the real is just this body we're born into that has basically these vital uh, processes that go whether we want them to or not, which is scary to think about actually. You can't, you don't will your heart to beat. You don't make your lungs all like the body just does its thing. That's, that's really cool. And it's just constantly overflowing and creating stuff. I write in one of my blog posts kind of along your cum lines of like (laughs) how productive the body is and that you just shit and piss. And uh, I have, I've had acne problems like throughout my life. So like as a kid, I always think like my body just produces this extra stuff. Like it just produces pus and acne for me. It's nasty, but it's productive. So your body's just churning all the time it starts to create this crude pre-mental kind of space that has like these crude images in it, which is kind of the imaginary for Lacan. So that's real to imaginary. And then symbolic is like language gets involved and language is always bound up with other people. You can have images, crude images without other people. I think that maps onto Lacan's 
uh, trifecta. What do you think? I mean, I think the only one that I really understand that well, and this is like the example you gave of the real is that which defies signification. Yep. But yep. I don't really, I don't have that clear of a grasp on <laughs> the difference between imaginary and symbolic for Lacan or even just, just in general. Yeah. I, I just know symbolic has to do with language. Oh uh, yeah. That's, I guess. Yeah. That makes sense. That's all I really know. And I think I, I again, tend to just view it through that Freudian lens of what I just kind of talked about. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm like, let's see, there was Freud and then Lacan wanted to return to Freud. And then it's really a big debate about whether how much Lacan refer, returned to Freud or not, you know? And then when I look at Lacan, I just go back to Freud and then read Lacan through Freud. So it's like this big messed up feedback circle for me. It's almost like that conception of time that like, it's all, yeah, yeah. Like little loop. Exactly. And uh, yeah. <laughs> like the Mobius strip a little bit. Mobius strip is a cool concept by uh, Lacan there. Those oh, geometries well. are interesting. Where do you, uh, where do you want to go, go next? We've kind of talked a little bit about death drive. You did <laughs> mention uh, something that you wanted to talk about was hyper reality and the uh, synthetic productive ability yeah i love uh you you like baudrillard oh yeah yeah baudrillard baudrillard thank you i'm so bad with the names (laughs) deleuze guattari baudrillard okay um (laughs) god that guy's a genius and that uh samalacran simulation book is absolutely amazing i've i've read it so many times over but he talks about psychoanalysis in the first few pages but I think that book is so important to bring up, especially in relation to psychoanalysis, because interesting psychoanalysis is basically just the practice of hyperreality. Uh, I have this piece coming out in, I forget the name of the journal. Uh, oh, the MVU, the Miskatonic Virtual University Press. So there, that's uh, you can look them up on Twitter. They're pretty cool, but uh that's basically uh, from the CCRU lore, and now they're doing a journal about that stuff, but enough of that. Uh, no, Freud, so Freud's early discovery that he discovers by accident with psychoanalysis is that uh, you can have the same effect talking to people as you do administering material objects. So that speech as doing or speech as thing, which is Deleuze and Guattari's uh, sort of diagrammatics, they call it, or uh, in schizoanalysis where talking has the same effect as material. But what that all means taken out of a theoretical register is that, uh, is that the belief structure matters way more than the actual facts for analysis. Like patients come in, they have all these ideas about who you are. You don't tell them much about yourself. They project all these ideas onto you you kind of play around with being that person or not being that person. And through that process of being like, but also dissimilar to that person over time, you actually introduce new ideas into that kind of mental structure they have. And you kind of broaden that, uh, broaden that archetype, that structure. Uh, 
and it doesn't matter at all, like the facts between who either of you really are. You're kind of in what Winnicott would call this playful state where you're just playing around with ideas. And a lot of the cure comes from that, which I think is just hyper-reality. Like, because uh, for me, hyper-reality is that the simulation has the same effect as the reality. You know, Baudrillard has that beautiful bank robbery thing where he's like, you dress everyone up like robbers and give them guns and they go into the bank, but they don't have any intentions of robbing the bank. Can you tell yeah. the difference between the the robbery and the simulation? You can't. Or the map that becomes the model. Right. Because psychoanalysis is a mental, I don't, I don't want to say science, but a mental method. Uh, you're constantly working with people's maps and the map really does become the model. Uh, it's, it's the same as placebo effect in a way. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Plus, placebos still outrank the medicine in the double-blind trials, as far as I know. <laughs> you know, like, if people think they're getting better, they're getting better. Yeah. Uh, I'll shut up, because <laughs> it looks like you have a thought, but uh, I just think that's amazing, and I think people overlook it all the time. Yeah, that's definitely something super fascinating. Um, so what this makes me think, first of all, um, I guess I should mention, and I think maybe I've even talked to you a little bit about this briefly before is I've been considering trying to synthesize a lot of Lacan and Baudrillard in an analysis of, uh-huh. of posting on Twitter. Mm, mm-hmm. And so now you're giving me like this idea that <coughs> there, uh, like posting is, is a type of discourse and I can't articulate whom it is or whom it's with, but I think there's, there's a tie in to what you're talking about in terms of not only like Baudrillard in terms of hyper reality. Like I think that plays into it, but also from the psychoanalytic standpoint, there's something going on like that relationship between it's almost like, okay, so if I am posting, I am and. Yes, absolutely. Because listen to this. Okay, so you described earlier the relationship between the analyst and the the anal- analyzan, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So the the person being analyzed. Since I don't like to, the word is hard to. No, yeah, just to <laughs> pronounce. Say whatever you want. The person being analyzed doesn't see the the analyst during the session, right? Correct. Very similar to whenever I'm posting. I don't see the recipient. I don't see the other, uh-huh. that message. So that's a very interesting relationship that I yeah. think there's a lot of ground, right? And I think maybe that is, that's kind of this, I see a lot of overlap, especially through posting between Lacan and Baudrillard. And mm-hmm. I want to do a paper, maybe even submit this to something like, um, the LAC conference or something to synthesize that in an analysis of posting itself. I love that. That's so interesting. I think that's clever, especially because uh, you could raise questions like when you send a post out to Twitter, do you have unconsciously in your mind certain people you're assuming it'll reach? Right. Or do you not like I know sometimes I post things and I know this person will like this. Yeah. And within 30 seconds, that person likes it. Right. And I'm like, 
uh, I didn't make it for them, but I knew it would have a received audience. I guess it gets to the purloin letter question of like, which is your Derrida thing. You're, you know, that Derrida, right? Where Lacan and Derrida have this thing about like, does the letter always reach its uh, receiver or whatever that whole, I don't know. I'm not too up on that conflict, but uh, whenever we make an enunciation or whenever we speak or post, who do, do we, who do we think is on the other end of it? And, uh, that kind of stuff. I think that's all very interesting. Yeah. Plus, I mean, it kind of even ties into as well, like we had mentioned earlier, sort of that mirror, I, that idea of mirroring or like the looking glass self. It's like, I'm, I'm almost, I'm learning what, what type of posts get a reaction yep. from the other every time that I'm making them. And then that's like a feed feedback loop of me creating more, things that you know what I mean like it's yeah yeah based on that like I'm constituting who I am or myself through the other's rea- reaction to my symbolic thought mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally but I think there's yeah. also there's you know there's <coughs> a way to look at posting as like there's a jouissance jouissance to it um mm-hmm. Into that, like free, associative, almost um, like you're saying, like we talked about the schizophrenic, like there's a certain jouissance element there, and just like these um, about kind of breaking apart language and and sort of putting it back together on all these sort of very novel um, and libidinal, like there's a mm-hmm. libidinality to it there too, and so I think that's super super fascinating, and like there's a lot of fer- fertile ground, like delve in and kind of suture Baudrillard and Lacan together in this analysis of posting. No, I think you got a lot there. Yeah. And I think too, um, just food for thought is, I don't know if you were aware of the LAC conference, but I think they're accepting submissions up through maybe March or February. Mm -hmm. And that's something that like Todd McGowan puts on, I think they're at the university of, uh, I believe it's Vermont. If I'm not mistaken. Is it in Burlington? Yeah. Pretty sure it is. Yeah. No, that make, yeah, you should totally write that. That that could be very uh I Just think that's for you too, it might be, you know, something since you you know, they no, might be more receptive to kind of Yeah, I'll have to think about writing that. and such. See if there's a clinical aspect I can bring to that. But well, I totally think you should do that work because I think psychoanalysis needs to move into the digital age and it's really lagged behind like a lot of my analysts and supervisors are like 70 to 90s <laughs> like they don't understand the modern age like uh like we're in an age of uh i see a lot of young kids and i've i've you know i'm closer to 30 than 20 but i grew up with kind of a decent internet age of like uh you know I definitely remember going on 4chan with my friends and thinking this is the edgiest thing in the world. And, uh, but you grow up now and there's things like TikTok and vine. And, uh, these are loaded with the most interesting kind of hyper realities and, and kind of weird mirror tricks that I think you're talking about, which is like, everything is so post ironic now. Uh, that everything is drifting in a weird way. Everything's speeding up in a strange way. And we really need to keep, keep up with the culture that's developing. That's very vague, but I, I guess I'm just in support of your piece. <laughs> I, I think that'll be helpful to understanding. 
everything that's going on. So maybe this can ground it for us too, though, because I think uh, some another like I think maybe the link here for us is that Baudrillard also has the concept of the real. It does and the symbolic, and I'm not. I can't remember <coughs> sure if he references imaginary specifically, but he definitely he has does. concepts. I, I believe he does, but I, it's just like failing my mind. Yeah, so memory's failing me. Um, but I know he at least has the idea of the real and the symbolic for sure. They kind and of collapse into each other. It's yeah, and it's a different. It, there's a contrast between how Baudrillard sees these things versus Lacan. I think in terms of at least the real Lacan would say that the real, there was like, it's, there's never been a real, Mm. the real is a fiction in a sense, or like maybe a fiction would be the the wrong way to, to describe it. It maybe it'd be more like we've never had access to the real direct access. We can only experience it through this sort of symbolism and at least in simulacra and simulation, Baudrillard is talking about, okay, there's a procession of, of this simulation. And yep. like historically, there was a real that has now been subsumed and there's no, now there's really no distinction between the symbolic and the real. I think that's big for me. The idea that there is no distinction anymore. And if there is, it's totally secondary and, doesn't really matter anyways like it almost it's almost Occam's razor like uh yeah there is a distinction but who cares doesn't seem to meaningfully come into play you know what I mean yeah because we can never get outside ourselves to to get this bird's eye view of the real anyways so we're always kind of just filtering it through our I think you get what I'm getting yeah and I mean I think maybe that's the like link between Lacan and, and Baudrillard is that idea of, okay, like maybe the symbolic, uh, I guess for Lacan, the, what is it? The symbolic order uh-huh. or the symbolic largely, right? Like that is the sort of the same as for, for Baudrillard, the simulation, because that's really what Baudrillard is focusing on is like this element of like, you know, the sign, the signifier. And that's the common thread too um, between the two thinkers is that kind of arbitrary relationship between signifier and signified yeah. and how that plays into <clears throat> the real and the symbolic. No, that's right. I think another connection here from my perspective between Lacan and Baudrillard is uh, the idea of authority, not in your traditional authoritarian or authoritative way, but Lacan's whole shtick was like uh, when you're in the session with him, he is the master signifier. He makes the rules and kind of whatever he says goes. So he gets a little carried away with it, but I do use that uh, when I work with patients where, especially kids, I have fun with it in a playful way. They'll say, that rule doesn't make sense. And I say, doesn't matter if it makes sense, it's my rule. Like, I do it playfully, unlike the father who would say, it doesn't matter, the rules are the rules. But the joke I'm playing with is that uh, that's like kind of the reality principle that, you get out there in life and actually it doesn't make sense, but you still have to cor- you still have to correspond and react to it regardless of whether it makes sense or not. Right. Like whether it's right or wrong, it's happening, yeah. which is That's kind a of good Nick point. Land's non, but, uh, and so Lacan really brought that in, uh, 
to the room. You know, that's why he would do part of the reason why you do variable length sessions. And I think to speak of this idea of arbitrary relations between signifiers, that is where I really get the hyper real in uh, psychoanalysis. You could take one patient and have him see 10 different analysts and he could have 10 different treatments based on 10 different symptoms. So when I see the patient, I realize that it's just my mind making sense of this patient's events and that basically we're creating a relationship that only lasts or means something between me and him. So I'm the master reference point and he's just these floating signifiers and eventually he needs to kind of latch on to what I'm up to in order to get some clarity into things and then he can really challenge me and we can really meet together as two people that actually have their own wants and desires. But until he kind of, I, I haven't quite formed, worked it all out in my head, but you kind of get where I'm going with that. Lacan really makes himself kind of the master signifier. Uh, and he simulates. That's basically you're simulating in the office. The outside reality doesn't matter. You're in here with me now, and that's what matters. Is there any, anything beyond beyond in terms of hyperreality that you wanted to articulate? I just love the idea that the uh, basically belief has the same effect as reality. And that's really at the core of psychoanalysis. Uh, that's where it started with the hy hysterical patients is they have certain – yeah, that's it. Everything, <laughs> everything else would be just uh, kind of – talking in circles. I think these things are hard to pin down, at least for me. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly. What else, uh, is there anything else we haven't talked about that you wanted to, to get at a little bit? Let me look at our little Twitter DM thing. What else do we, well, while I'm looking, let me flip <laughs> it back to you. Did, was there anything uh, that you were really wanted to get at that we didn't get at? I don't, I don't think so. Other than just uh, maybe like we could just loosen things up if you want and uh, just kind of shoot the shit for a little bit before we wrap up the recording. Yeah. That's if, you have something, if you have something else substantive that you wanted to discuss, let's by all means do that. Cause even that can trigger lines of flight. You know what I mean? Totally. Uh, I don't think I just, I guess what interests me is I think, like I said, psychoanalysis is like the practice of the hyperreal, but it's also a very Kantian affair. I shared with you some Wilfred Bion. That guy's very interesting thinker. Uh, but his whole idea along with this hyperreal stuff is that uh, patients basically come to us with all these chaotic fragments and it's the analyst's mind that puts together the fragments and then relays them back to the, to the patient. Uh, that's what a good interpretation should be. It's like, I'm hearing these things. This is the sense I've made out of it. But that makes me think, and I use this in all walks of life, is uh, no matter, kind of going back to what we said about vital processes of like the heart and the lungs and all that, no matter how hard you try, you can't not make sense of something. Which I just think is so interesting about the mind. Unless you're full-blown schizophrenic, in which case schizophrenics make all kinds of sense, but it's not sense that makes sense to us. It's not a shared sense. They'll find patterns in numbers that 
don't really exist or they exist to them. They'll find all these kind of conspiracy theory threads through things. But when you sit and kind of just experience reality, you realize there is no way to not make sense of it. You're already filtering out noise. You're ordering signs. You're imbuing things with meaning. And then as a secondary process, you have to go back and change that. Um, so I think that it's right along there with that sort of Lacan master signifier thing in the hyperreality that a patient may go to a colleague and present the, a symptom and my colleague might help them in a certain way. And that's totally good because the system of meaning is closed in, in a loop. It's what a hermeneutics call a, uh, what do they call it? Creating a hermeneutic loop or something like that, where basically the two people make sense of the story together. But that patient might go to a totally different analyst, say me, and me and that patient might make a totally different loop. But we might come up with totally different sense because it really has to do with like the arbitrary relationship between the two signs. Well, that's why I think it's hyper real. Psychoanalysis tried so long to be positivistic that there are these fixed diagnoses and these fixed kind of characters and if you apply the same method across the board, you'll get the same results. God, it's never been further from that, uh, which is where I think schizoanalysis is really meaningful in that you have to look at everyone and you have to say, who is this person? Why are they coming in? What do they want? And what can I really do for them? There are some patients that I realize, like, I don't think I can actually help this person. Or if the person doesn't want help, they just want understanding and I'm having a hard time that can be something where I say, I'm having a really hard time understanding this. You know, what should I do about that? Or say, maybe I refer them to someone else. So I think that uh, for me, that's the hyper real. Uh, that's kind of the master signifier. And that's kind of this Kantian model of mind that we're always synthesizing raw data to produce sense. Uh, that's, that, I think that's my main thrust. Uh, I don't know if you have any connections to that. I don't know. I just immediately thought of the relationship you're talking about the, the session, right. And in a, in a way that kind of feels like, and in a sense, what, what this discussion is to some degree, especially like even just materially, it's like, I, I, you can see me, but I can't see you throughout this discussion and we're 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 dialoguing and we're creating this trying to like navigate this understanding like this narrative i felt like there's a there's a lot of similarity there right oh i totally didn't realize i did that (laughs) it's so interesting yeah i look i didn't shower this morning so it's good thing i'm not on camera but uh yeah no i'm not yeah (laughs) immediately my analytic mind goes in and my first thought was to say Oh, did, did you have any feelings about that? <laughs> I'm such an asshole. Uh, well, no, I hope I didn't. I guess I'll put it more socially. I hope I haven't created any sort of strange power dynamic by being... Oh, no, no, not at all. Okay, okay. That would not be my intent. No, not at all. Uh, I'm actually feeling very connected with you. I think this has been a very fun talk. Uh, so that is what it is. But uh, that that's a good point. I'm not visual. Yeah. But, uh, no, tell me more about, uh, what have you found most helpful about Lacan? I stick on Lacan cause your Twitter name is young Lacanian and you have the hmm. Lacan as your headband. I don't know if it's 
been that helpful like materially but i find it i or really maybe just like the weird contradictions of psychoanalysis in terms particularly with desire i just i fucking it's so interesting to me like that contradictory nature and like something about that just is immensely immensely interesting and fascinating and Lacan has really just become somebody that, although, you know, I don't know if, you know, there's a lot of like practical benefit for me, but like the ex- the exercise of going through this thought process is, I don't know, it's, it's so much fun and it's so interesting. And I think <coughs> he, to me, uh, even amongst like all of the fascinating thinkers like Derrida, Foucault, et cetera, OGR, there's something about him that I'm really drawn to. And that, like, I think his creativity and imagination in terms of his thought process is something that I enjoy quite mm-hmm. a bit. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with all that. Yeah. He was certainly an interesting guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, such a fascinating, like kind of an really kind of like a piece of shit asshole he's an absolute asshole yeah but i still like i still like that almost endears him to to me even further totally you know what i mean yeah totally uh no i i get that i'm uh sometimes when you're just in line with what you want you're going to be an asshole he's also a very nice guy in some ways that's what i learned through analysis was uh you just kind of got to say how you feel, but not attack people, but right. say how you feel. And really it's a hard fork. People are going to, some people are going to like you and really love you. And some people are going to hate you. And so much of life is spent trying to please everyone and be like, uh, constantly alter yourself. That would be the false self. When you just kind of drop all that stuff away, you realize you just enjoy life a lot more. And the people who don't stick around, you don't have resentment towards them. It's like, oh, I hope they find someone they enjoy being around. And then you end up making connections you never would have made. Uh, and then things work out better and then more people are happy. That's yeah. the hope at least. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something I've, um, I think that's become a lot clearer to me as I've gotten older is I think like I, for the longest time was so obsessed with trying to please other people. And now I'm like much more comfortable um, whether it be like being alone or like not mm-hmm. seeking like that, not seeking approval or, or what have you has been a, a, to some degree like liberating. Yeah, that's totally different. true. That's another Winnicott thing. He talks about the ability to be alone with yourself and just feel okay and not constantly need presence. Yeah. Although I'm, you know, as you <laughs> attest to him, even when I'm alone, I'm very much on t- posting on Twitter like a neurotic. So we'll see. <laughs> no, I like it. I think <laughs> it's that's healthy. like a displaced thing. Um, it's good. I think it's good. But uh, along that line too, like talking about what kind of a piece of shit Lacan was, uh, <laughs> I jokingly, like I talk about, or I've said this a number of times, like I think Lacan is the philosopher king that Plato was, was really writing about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, think I just that. think he fu- he fulfills that that form like he is the ideal form to be the full. That's what like in reality, <laughs> like if there was a philosopher king, it would be Lacan embodies that ideal. I can see that. 
That's too funny. I've never connected that before. I think Lacan and uh, Socrates would get along, regardless of whether Socrates is fictional or whatever. I think they would uh, really get along. Uh, that's too funny. He's Maybe. certainly the psychoanalytic king. Everyone wants to either be Lacanian or be so anti-Lacanian. Sorry, what were you trying to say, though? I was just going to say, if you have uh, read, there's a funny anecdote. I forget. I think there's like a student of Lacan or maybe one of his lovers or something that had come out with a book. Uh, maybe might have been even recently, but I know I read the article recently is like he's go Lacan goes to visit Heid- Heidegger and Heidegger's wife and, and all this stuff. And Lacan's like going on and on about something and like Heidegger really never says much <laughs> it was always the question of like and then like his wife like kind of like ushers them out eventually and it was kind of like just a funny <laughs> anecdote of like whether like Heidegger was like paying attention to what the, what he was saying or like what what his silence and kind of that's too funny and, and even the idea of like those two thinkers interacting and that I mean that's another thing that I find really fascinating is I think particularly in the in the French theoretical tradition is like how many of these people were contemporaries and were like friends or they were rivals. Like it's, it's such an interesting like mythology to it. It totally is. I have this theory that uh, I got to find the letter again in a collection of Freud's letters. uh, The late thirties. When did Freud die again? When did Freud die? Google (laughs) before I sound like an idiot. Go, go Google. Yeah, go, go, Google. 1939. So, like, sometime in, like, 37, Freud gets a letter, and he responds to it by saying something like, uh, I was like, it's only his response that's documented. It's like, this is a wonderful piece of philosophy, and I enjoy what you're doing with my work, but I'm not sure it has anything to do with psychoanalysis. And I was doing some conspiracy theory research, and it seems to line up around the time see when was Lacan doing stuff uh Lacan was writing uh he would have been in his late 20s 30s finishing up some of his work and Lacan did reach out to Freud so I always thought this is probably uh Freud's response to Lacan (laughs) right (laughs) I don't have enough evidence at all to claim that but it'd be an interesting uh because Lacan did try to contact Freud and Freud blew him off and then Lacan never tried to reach him again. So there's some interesting lore there. Of yeah. All that stuff. So that would be hilarious. I wonder how pissed Lacan was. Like, I wonder how much his ego was, was hurt that, that Freud kind of blew him off. I, I bet a lot, but I bet <laughs> he would never admit it. And his yeah, oh, of course followers not. might never admit it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's all kinds of little weird things. Like, I mean, I'm sure you know that, Watari was obviously, you know, he's a, was a student of Lacan, but yep. fucking was his driver. And like Lacan made Watari drive home after sessions. Yeah. But I think Lacan literally like made Watari pay him. Watari paid Lacan to let him drive. For he Lacan. did. He did. Lacan said it was quote part of the session, which I think <laughs> is fucking, I mean like that alone, if that doesn't, that doesn't sum up, kind of like this idea that I'm getting at it. Yeah. Lacan being philosopher King, like, no, like, totally. I don't know what it is. I get a sick. Just the, like, uh, there's the, a jouissance to like, yes, him being just such a, what such he a says asshole. goes, he's, yeah. he's the best of part. Yeah. And 
not having any sort of remorse and uh, <laughs> being absurd, but leaning into it so much yeah. that you can't tell whether he knows he's doing it or not. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, yes, that's a good you way have to pay me. Also, <laughs> yes, it's part of the uh, session. <laughs> yeah. And then like Watari bringing anti Oedipus to, to Lacan and then yes. Lacan getting so pissed and trying to ruin his career and blackball him. For, like, yep. Well, there's an interesting parallel there. This, eventually, I need to finish this Guattari book. I take on too many projects, but uh, oh yeah, I know the feeling. You should see my stack; it's all it's always growing. And then you should send me some in the DM, so I'll look into them. I'm always interested in what people did I, are doing. Did I send you the? Um, I have a pretty robust library of PDFs, and oh, you did. I haven't looked. Okay. At that yet. That's really it's got a ton of stuff. Okay, so I'll have to look at that. Taking taking a look at that, and then I'm gonna continue to broaden that and eventually add in, uh, start adding in some fiction stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. So if you have anything, I mean, I can, I've got your email now so I can create an account for you so you can do easy uploading and stuff too. If you want to contribute to that and feel free to share that out as well. Yeah. That'd be cool. The Burt, Burt box, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got that. I'll look into that. Yes. What, uh, what, what are you reading? I have read everything by him. Uh, I have, uh, let's see, what do I have? It's uh, Chaosmosis. Yeah. That's, that's the one that I actually have. I just haven't actually started reading it just yet. What's his last book? Uh, or is that the collection of texts? Is Chaosmosis and Chaosophy? I think Chaosmosis is the last text yeah. that he wrote. I think the, sub, the subtitle on that one is like Ethico Aesthetic paradigm yeah 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 that's the Which last at least book you that wrote. that kind of has me at, at that title yeah yeah he his whole thing with that and even before that he's trying to replace typical ethics and moral like enunciations with aesthetic ones so i think it's just a genius idea of uh he's trying to get back in touch with affect and yeah I think I mean, Gary Jasenko has he contrasts Guattari's pathic with the ontic, like how do you feel about something versus what it really is. So I think that stuff's all really smart. I'm instinctively drawn to that to that sort of thing. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, that's his most readable text too. He actually had a psychoanalyst friend go through it and like edit it because. Pre, pre that Guattari is like just notorious for being uh, basically unedited and unreadable, but in a great way. Like I love it. Like schizoanalytic cartographies is like the book that comes out before that. That one's just, that one's a doozy. Just goes on and on sentences that last like a page. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, yeah, I've even considered, this is like an alternative name to the podcast because one thing that like, I love the aesthetic of like what I've got going on right now in terms of the title. And I think it speaks to a lot of like, and I don't know if this even comes across is so originally like podcast was in quotation marks, but uh-huh. I really just changed it for us. I removed the quotations for aesthetics more than anything, but it was really to kind of play on this uh, like postmodern, like, you know what I mean? Kind of like the arbitrariness of that, like calling out, making it very upfront, like the arbitrariness of a title. 
uh, but also yeah, yeah, drawing yeah. from like this brand. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, there's a brand called off white and that's kind of the shtick of, of off white is they will like label something like a wallet is says has just wallet and like Helvetica, mm-hmm. you know, like sans serif font in quotation marks or like a boots, a pair of boots, say boots are like for walking or something. So it's like, it's calling out that, like, and which I think is a very yeah. like, fascinating kind of nod to post-structuralism itself. Yeah, it's the, the kind of structural category becomes the object itself. Right. So like the map becomes the model. Yes, this is podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, my podcast podcast. Yeah. yeah. But like know. practically for uh, things like search, search engine optimization and like May actually finding the podcast if you're like searching for something it's terrible oh absolutely because <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't like I, there's not like not in a million years am i ever going to be the first like search result if you just type in no podcast right <laughs> that's so, too funny bl- i like bad, that bad planning on my part there um so good uh good aesthetic branding bad digital yeah, like bad uh, yeah exactly yeah. so what i <laughs> what i have thought of in the back of my mind is perhaps renaming the podcast like machinic unconscious happy hour or something like that. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had a, you know, I, I'm going to say her name wrong. Tygen or Tygen. No, she's on Twitter as at schizoanalytic. She, she knows a lot about Guattari. You should follow her. She lectures on Guattari. Um, but she she would like that too. Just made me think of her. Uh, I'll send her to you after if you can't find her. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, no, I love that Machine Unconscious. Have you read that one by Guattari? I have not. I've just seen the title and I'm like, I I don't know. That's again cool title. Something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I I love that kind of aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Before I let you go, I do think it is funny and interesting. And I don't know, it says something about you that Nick land will like actually reply to you on Twitter and like dialogue dialogue with you, which I think is pretty fascinating. And I know that like, you know, maybe we would take some heat because Nick land is like a fucking is a reactionary lunatic, but there's something interesting to be able to, there's something novel about being able to interact with someone who has that kind of a mind, like I think he's he's a very nice person. Like there's few like right even like Zizek, Zizek for example, like he's kind of like the only other mass like person, big like well known person in this realm that people are really like that's really in the popular imagination. And I don't even think Land uh, approaches that level of of notoriety largely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the fact that you can, you know, obviously like this is a guy that wrote some, you know, pretty good stuff at, at one point in his career and was like interacting with Mark Fisher, who like, you know, is obviously, you know, they were buddies. So. so the fact that you can just get on Twitter and interact with somebody like that, I don't know. It's just, that is really interesting to me. Well, I was emailing him for months and he wasn't responding, oh, which I land? totally understand. Yeah. Like I was sending him like, Hey, you know, just want to chat, ask you some questions. Cause I'm writing this piece on Mark Fisher and Nick land. But, uh, finally I decided to DM him on Twitter and he responded 
we haven't actually had that too fruitful of a conversation. He's a very smart, busy guy. Um, and I don't think my questions interest him, which is totally fine. I'm more interested in like, uh, I'll just give you one of the answers. I have the DMs open now. Uh, let's see. I asked him like this really long question. And then he said, I'm reluctant to ever engage in psychological speculation. Totally fine. Oh, then I asked another really long question. And he just said, psychobiography sucks. <laughs> Which had me laughing. Like, he's a funny guy. But uh, so basically, I wanted to learn, like, about his friendship with Mark Fisher and, like, how the relationship was. And wanted to learn, like, how humor plays a part in his work and, like, ask some questions about concepts that he uses and some of his earlier work. And I think he's in a different place, more interested in, like, whatever political things he's interested in now, which like fucking race science and IQ and yeah, I don't care. I don't care at all about IQ or any of that stuff. Like, uh, which to the power of like freedom, like if he wants to research all that, he totally should. And whoever wants to research that should, but it's not my interest at all. Um, but I mean, I, I claim to, uh, totally destroy IQ discourse by my very existence. I, you have, you think you have low IQ or high IQ or just somewhere in the middle? Um, I would, I'll say high IQ, but I'm a, I'm an utter failure. So what does that tell you about <laughs> IQ? It's bullshit. Well, I think, I mean, I'm sure the IQ specialists would wreck me for this, but I think, you know, uh, I think a lot of people might agree with this actually that high IQ can actually get in the way of a lot of things in life. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Certainly of, relationships and yeah, totally. A lot of low functioning people have high IQ, but yeah, makes sense. Uh, <laughs> he, he's responded to me here and there. And, uh, I guess just the things I want to learn, he's not too interested in talking about, which is totally fine. So, um, but I do like, I, I do like some of his, his work. And even though I don't agree with all that stuff, um, I think his core idea, which is interesting, is he's actually not pro-fascism, which I think is confusing. But I think patchwork is interesting. The idea that uh, we should actually experiment with as many different possible organizations of social, social organizations as possible. And if people can make them work, let them make them work. I think in, on Justin Murphy's podcast, uh, Murphy was like, you know, can we use some of your ideas to do like leftist communism stuff? And Nick Land said, totally, just uh, don't do it around me, which <laughs> I think is like a little reactionary, but like, who, who cares? That's a perfectly fine answer, I think. Like, I think that's very psychoanalytic too, which is yeah. if you want to go do something, I guess that's a libertarianism that people associate with him. Go do it. Like his whole thing is like not imposing on anyone else which uh, he gets into the race science, but he doesn't, I read him as not wanting any sort of racial kind of segregation or any of that. He wants people to organize along whatever lines people want to organize. Um, and he's, he's argued against Richard Spencer, that white nationalist, which I think is, you know, that guy's, I'm not into any of that stuff at all. So that's why he interests me. Yeah. He's, he's uh, hard to read and he's, very reactionary, but also very misunderstood. And those people are exciting, I think, even if you don't agree with everything they have to say. I think that land is interesting in the 
in that he is a uh, he's an oxymoron of a of an he's a he's a reactionary but he with an imagination which i think is the the big problem with with fascists is they don't ha- they don't have a create creativity they don't have they don't have they don't have a freedom of yeah uh, you know what i mean it's all there's only one there you know what i mean there's like this domination of like it ha- everything is like this idealist yeah, that we aspire to rather than it's sucking out all the creativity of. He's not about unity, right? Which is such a right-wing concept, right? Even nationalistic concept. He's also not about nationalism, which is so interesting. Uh, from making it with death, uh, he said this great. How do you make yourself a Nazi? Burn Freud, take desire back to the Kantian conception, introduce a gloomy atmosphere of oppressive responsibility, love obedience. Uh, love the name of the leader, foster nostalgia for what is maximally bovine and flexible and stagnant, a line of racially pure peasants digging the same patch of earth for eternity, present everything, crush sexuality under reproductive function, re- rigidly enforce the domestication of women, distrust art. He goes on and on. Uh, and he says, trying not to be a Nazi approximates one to Nazism far more radically than any irresponsible impatience and destratification. Nazia might even be characterized as a pure politics of effort, the absolute absolute dominion of the collective superego. So for him, fascism and Nazism is the opposite of letting people, you know, actually live life. Like, right. I mean, that's which like is true. I could have written. Yeah. I mean, that's like, kind of like my whole orientation in, in politically or in terms of political economy is is very anarchistic. It's very mm-hmm. libertarian, but it's not so. And even like I have a fascination with Sterner, and I think that Sterner that. has a lot to uh, has a lot to offer us. And there's a lot of misconceptions about Sterner and I've what he never ad- read him and what he advocates. But I he in reading this uh, book by Todd May on Deleuze, I'm really seeing a lot of overlap in terms of what they're what they're projects are too and i felt that even he has a lot of parallels with derrida as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i think people get hung up on thinking that like this idea of egoism is like i i'll do what i'm do what i want and fuck you and that's not that's not what egoism is is about at all i I agree yeah uh i think egoism is kind of built into patchwork in a way like uh if you do if you say do what you want fuck you that's actually not egoist because no one would want to be around you. And then they would just, you just get shunned, right? Like it's not in your own interest to burn all those bridges <laughs> in the long term. That's how I tend to think of it. Like uh, some level of egoism requires actually some level of socializing with others because that's kind of how you survive. Yeah. And uh, then again, I haven't read any Sterner at all. So I'm not in any way uh, uh, able to comment. But. So it's also about like, if I am, I want to, it's, there's a selfish aspect of it in the sense that I want to, like the idea of the union of egoists is that you, I am interacting, my, I have a desire I to interact with other fully actualized beings and all of these sort of, all of the kind of categories, et cetera, that institutions place on us 
restrict us from being fully self-actualized. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of their talk. A lot of what Sterner is really, really about is is that idea too. Mm-hmm. It's like these, all of these kind of arbitrary expectations that are set upon us by society or what ha- you know what I mean, institutions, etc., that limit whom we can become. Mm-hmm. or limit our becoming maybe would be the more accurate way to describe it. And so recognizing that this, those, there's no, like these are all kind of imaginary spooks that we can, don't have to <laughs> be uh, slaves to. Mm-hmm. Like we can create, we can have a space to create ourselves as something more, something that transcends even the concept of humanness. Mm-hmm. Because even that, like the concept of human is limiting your ability in, in becoming. Hmm. Well, that sounds a little delusion. I like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm like, that's my mind or is. Quetarian. Yeah. So, which I think is really fascinating that I didn't expect there to be that kind of similarity or overlap or relationship between Sterner and, and Deleuze. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited to talk to Todd May because that's like his world is very much like he's one of the handful of people that are taking this a lot of these post-structuralist thinkers and um, creating like a discourse about like the relationship between anarchism and these ideas and mm-hmm. like that whole discussion is one that I'm super drawn to. Yeah, no, that's important. I'll have to read Sterner at some point. I'm looking at uh, May's wiki now. I've never heard of him. He's got some interesting stuff. I've Very got a few cool. of his pieces are up on the, uh, including the intro to Deleuze is on the, on that library. Okay, I'll have to check that out. We will be recording on May, or not May, February 5th. Nice, I'll listen that'll, to it. That'll be out really soon. I'm super, super looking forward to that. I'm going to talk to him a lot about his book on Deleuze, but also... He's got like a political philosophy of post-structuralist anarchism as well. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. That we're going to talk about. But uh, Yeah, I actually have to go through your backlog and see who you got. I only briefly skimmed. But uh, yeah, that'll be nice. That'll be nice. You might like, um, I had Andrew Culp who wrote oh, yeah. Deleuze. Yep, yep. I had him I, on. That I, have was the, I have that book. Was he nice? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Super nice guy. Um, that's cool. Also, Todd McGowan. I did an episode with him is fantastic. I mean, it's probably super basic kind of psychoanalytic Lacanian stuff about Mm -hmm. object, desire, et cetera. But it's, uh, I mean, that might be the one I've gotten the most positive feedback on. Cool. But I've had, you know, I've had a really, been fortunate to have a number of different, really interesting folks from all kinds of different walks of life on the podcast. Yeah, that's cool. I'm like super notable, like even just randomly, like, uh, I've had an economist, uh, I forget, <laughs> drawing a blank on his name, but he, like, he's a you know well-known person within mm-hmm. economics that teaches here at the University of uh, Texas. Oh, very cool. Yeah, you don't need to get big name people. So many people that no one's ever heard of that uh, have a lot to say that is uh, helpful to conversation. So, but yeah. I'm. I'm feeling like we're at a pretty good stopping point. I definitely want you to share out, uh, you know, share out what you want in terms of your your blog that you're putting out, your Twitter, yeah. etc. Definitely plug. Definitely. Uh, articles you've written, etc. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My, I'm DC Barker and parentheses tick on Twitter. The tag is 4Q248. Uh, and my blog is linked there. It's supposed to be pseudo analysis, but I think I'm becoming dyslexic and I spelt it pseudo analysis and I've just uh, left it that way because that's kind of not I am. But basically my Twitter is just a mouthpiece for my blog where I talk about psychoanalysis. Uh, I kind of write funny articles about CCRU stuff. I, I just write about everything. You just go re read my blog and usually short pieces, just have fun. Um, yeah, and uh, I love chatting with people. I really just use Twitter to like meet people like you and uh, just talk. That's my profession and that's what I get enjoyment out of. So that's what I try to do. Um, all right. That's my only piece. Oh, and I got some eBooks coming out eventually on, uh, one's on CCRU and like, I'm kind of writing about all these conspiracy theories of like all this, these kind of CCRU themes that pop up in culture. Um, and it's kind of like I'm editing my blog and turning it into a book, but I'm also adding new chapters to kind of beef it up. And then I have this other project I'm working on just looking at basically Mark Fisher and Nick Land as this interesting embodiment or territorialization of these two trends. The trend on the left, unfortunately, of like kind of being self-destructive, getting mired in what they would call like left melancholy uh, and depression and all that kind of stuff and how that can really lead to suicide and like how do you avoid that? And I kind of right. look at that clinically. And then on the right side, how... Uh, if we're being really like kind of vulgar and reductionist, the right tends to be violent and maybe more lean towards homicide. So why is that split the way it is? And I'm kind of having fun with that and trying not to get too polemical or too caught up in uh, this left-right debate. So if you're interested in those, they should be done by February or March. Uh, that's it. That's all my plugs. It's funny that you mentioned that. I was like, I've been thinking about that too. I was actually I didn't end up posting it, but I, for some reason, mainly just because I must have forgotten and got distracted. But I was going to say mm -hmm. that, what does it say that both Deleuze and, and Mark Fisher killed themselves? <laughs> I, that's in the book, and you know what? <laughs> they both killed themselves writing a book on Marx. Interesting. Uh, so Deleuze was in the middle of or thinking about he had those notes on his books on Marx, and Mark Fisher yeah. was writing Acid Marxism. And I say in the beginning of the book this title could very well be, could work for both Deleuze's book and Fisher's book in that so much of Deleuze and Guattari's later work is basically pretty in line with people like Cooper and Lang, uh, the British anti-psychiatrists. And that's where the term acid communism comes from is Cooper and Lang. Uh, so there's pretty clear semiotic connections. And then I go through this whole genealogy of like, all these leftist thinkers and practitioners who killed themselves. And then it really culminates in what is called left melancholia. And then it culminates in basically the weaponization of suicide with like the red army faction and like the seventies and eighties, like Ulrich Meinhof, whatever her name is. And, uh -huh. and then even in the civil rights where people, you know, like starve themselves to death as like a way of uh, protesting or, and then even in the two thousands where, uh, this law professor shot himself in the hand in his university bathroom to protest gun control. You know, like why does the left have to get so suicidal to protest these things? And 
so it's just, I'm just trying to explore those things without getting too provocative. I don't yeah. want to, I really don't want to provoke this kind of like left versus right political stuff. I just want to, as a practitioner, you know, I take the Hippocratic oath to help people. So like, can we look at different ways of protesting and working politically that don't involve suicide? So that's my thing there. <laughs> on, on that rather bright note, we will, uh, we will be signing off this week. So once again, thanks to DC for joining me on yeah. podcast Cooper, Kara Cooper Cherry. We are signing out. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, absolutely. Bye. Take it easy. You too. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is